0: And our first reading is from Matthew chapter 21, reading from verse 23 to verse 32. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question if you tell me the answer. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? And they argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the crowd. For all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not, but later changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. Listen out for the word of God.
1: That's Philippians chapter 2, reading the first 11 verses. If then there is any encouragement in Christ but to the interests of others, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
0: They say that travel broadens the mind. I'm not sure if it was my mind that's been broadened as I have eaten and drunk my way through several weeks in the United States of America. Um, But it was a great trip over the last three weeks and I have enjoyed myself thoroughly. And I've discovered that things are different. One of the places where this became very evident to me was when we were watching the uh, American football. Now, I know I was never going to understand it, was I? My well-known antipathy to sport and my blind spot when it comes to, well, why would you do that, Um, kind of plays in. But we watched a lot of sport, Um, and it was fun because I didn't care. But the thing that made me really aware that I wasn't understanding what was going on was the protest that's been happening uh, in American football over the last few weeks, the Take a Knee movement. I know it's been reported a a bit here, um, and the game that two American teams played at Wembley the other week also involved this protest. But just in case you've missed it, let me describe it for a moment. Over a year ago, one of the players began to kneel rather than stand with his hand on his heart in the normal manner, when the anthem was played before the game. And uh, this was, he said, in protest at the historic impact of slavery and the ongoing impact of racism. His argument was that the flag and the anthem stood for equality, and while that was not the reality, he wasn't going to celebrate, he was going to mourn uh, and mourn the abuses it was not an all-round popular decision, and tellingly, he has not been retained by his team, and he currently uh, isn't playing. But others also gradually began to take a knee during the anthem, and it was scattered, and it was sporadic, and it was kind of accepted until about a couple of weeks ago. And, um, there were those who've objected strongly to the perceived disrespect. Um, there was disrespect in the flag, disrespect in the anthem... And the argument was disrespecting service personnel and the first responders who are always included in the honour that's paid. But those who were protesting maintained they were not disrespecting the flag, but were calling the country to honour its highest ideals. But a couple of weeks ago, the President made an inflammatory speech calling, those, calling for those who protested in this way to be sacked and calling them some names. And on the following game day, teams and owners and coaches and anybody else who had the possibility of being on the field looked for ways to signal their unity, even if they didn't agree with the protest. And so they stood, a lot of the teams stood with linked arms during the anthem. Many who had not knelt down before did choose to kneel. Um, Others didn't kneel, but they linked arms with those who did because they said they they wanted to be Unified with them, some teams chose not to be on the field during the anthem in order not to put pressure on themselves to take sides. And there were loud boos, and there was also support from the crowds. And it's become a national talking point. And as we left the states in midweek, it was showing no signs of calming down. It has clearly touched on something very deep and very emotionally charged, and it's not clear where it will end up. For those who are angry about the protest, there's a very clear sense. That those who are protesting are disrespecting something very deep and very important in national identity. And they believe it's a dangerous precedent to allow that to happen because who knows where that will lead to. Now, several things struck me about it, but mostly what got me was what I didn't understand. Why is kneeling a sign of disrespect? Why is kneeling a sign of disrespect? I have something of the same reaction to the readings that we've heard this morning. The sense that I'm not getting it. Why does this cause so much anger and so much fear? Jesus is teaching in the temple. This passage that we've heard from Matthew's Gospel comes fairly quickly after the um, triumphal entry. So after what we normally read at Palm Sunday. And he's come back to the temple and he's teaching in the temple and the leaders of the temple are angry and they're scared and they're trying to silence him. And why? Because he's not saying anything that has not been said before. Jesus says, love your enemies. Proverbs says, love your enemies. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. It's not new. Jesus says, welcome the stranger. The history and the prophetic books have welcome the stranger, care for the widow and the orphan, right at the center. The whole story of the book of Ruth, which was read annually, is about welcoming the stranger and looking after the marginalized. There's nothing new. Be a light to the nations. It's there in the blessing to Abraham. Why are they so afraid of Jesus? Why are they trying to shut him up? And the same with Paul in the church at Philippi. Paul is writing this letter from prison. And the church is being persecuted. That's why he's writing the letter. But why? They're not rioting in the streets. They're not attacking or hurting people. What is it that makes them so dangerous? I have a real sense of not getting it. Just as when I watch people kneel before a flag and then see others boo them, I don't get it. There's something going on that I'm not hearing or seeing. And if you're feeling that of these readings, you're right. Right. Because it's different. There is a different cultural context. And one which, if we're not aware of it, leaves us lost to the power of what's happening. I think it's clarified in the parable that Jesus tells and in the hymn that Paul quotes. In that parable, Jesus asks, which of the sons does what is right? The one who says he will obey his father and then doesn't or the one who says he won't and then does? And it looks pretty obvious. To say no and then do yes is surely better than say yes and then do no. I can't see why they find it so disturbing. They get the right answer, but they're clearly not happy. And we see it in the follow-up. Yes, and you have ex- the people you've excluded are first in the kingdom. Where's the link? And why is Paul's hymn so dangerous and subversive? The praise of humility and self-giving seems such a self-evident thing. Maybe hard, but we know that it's praiseworthy. And yet he's been imprisoned and the church is being persecuted. Why are people so angry at football players kneeling instead of standing? It's a mark of respect, surely. And then I read a bit and I listened a bit. And taking a knee, going down on one knee, is what soldiers do to mark a fallen colleague. It is a mark of respect, but it's also an assertion of death. It's a recognition of loss, and by doing it, the players are at the least in part forcing the recognition of those who are killed because of racism, and challenging the assumptions that the equality that's enshrined in the Constitution is actually experienced in everyday life. And of course, I needed to remember and recognize that the flag and the anthem mean very different things in the U.S. from my experience here in the U.K., and I'm only just beginning to grasp some of the differences and why people are so upset and why this is so powerful. It is the meanings, the symbols, the cultural structure around it are different. And similarly, understanding something of the cultural constructs, structures of first century Mediterranean world gives some clues about the power of the passages we're reading. In that culture, honour was the apex of the pyramid of social values and it conditioned the whole hierarchical order. It cut across all other classifications. It divided people into two fundamental categories, those who had and preserved their honour and those who who lost it. And the preservation of honour was important. It was status, it was significance, it was worth. It gave you a right to speak, to to be heard, to earn, to exist socially. Shame, on the other hand, can be described as a reversal of honour. It's contempt, it's loss of face, it's defeat. Shame sentenced a household to Effectively to death because it placed the land in jeopardy. Shamed households are not fulfilling their responsibility to their own members or to their neighbours. A household would lose public respect and recognition if it was shamed. And the model shows up in all sorts of Jesus parables. One of the reasons the father in the story of the prodigal son is so amazing is that he gives up all claim to honour First of all, he gives away his wealth before his death. And then he runs down the road to receive back the lost son. A patriarchal father in an honor shame society does not do that. There's the story of the banquet, where those who are invited choose not to come. And therefore, the king sends out and brings in the blind and the lame. In place of the rich and the healthy, it's another one where honor and shame are challenged. The whole pattern of the Beatitudes is based on taking the recognized structure of honor and shame and turning it around. And in this parable again, Jesus is cutting right across that structure. The father is shamed by both sons. Both damage the household. Both should be ostracized. Neither behavior is acceptable, for both cause the father, the guardian of the household's honor, to lose face, to be shamed. And interestingly, the history of a text does show this ambiguity. The reading that we have, the leader's answer that the son who says no and then does yes is the one who does what is right, is not the only text that exists. There is a disputed reading that places the, the, the other way around, that says the son that says yes and does no is actually the one that's right. And it's taken for granted amongst translators that this is a mistaken text, and it probably is, but I wonder... I wonder if the confusion is because in this culture, where this story is told, actually neither of them is right. It is an impossible dilemma unless people listening are willing to move beyond their accepted cultural constructs. And so often, that is exactly what Jesus is asking people to to do, to accept that God is not constrained by what they think is right, by how they understand the world to be, And that's where the story ends up, of course. That's the link to the next statement, that the tax collectors and the prostitutes get into the kingdom ahead of the teachers and the leaders. And that is shaming to God. How can God accept those who are not acceptable? How can the kingdom be open to those who live in flagrant disobedience to the laws and the structures that the temple enshrines and that honor God and protect God's honor and prevent God from being shamed? It's the heart of the hymn that Paul quotes to. Read it again, bearing in mind that in the context in which he is writing, humility is not a virtue, it's a weakness. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that this Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. This is not a hymn giving thanks that Jesus was kind enough to let go of the trappings of power in order to be with us in a kind of profoundly democratic move of all being equal. This is a deeply countercultural assertion that in Jesus, God lets go of all that gives worth and honor and power and respect and agency, all that gives dignity and reality to a person. Because the point is, slaves are not people. The point is that giving up the right to life is letting go of any kind of recognition or power. Anything that makes you have any kind of significance. And Paul goes even further. Not only did God in Jesus go utterly beyond the bounds of anything that's conceivable. This is the person to whom all the culturally powerful, the elite, the strong, the ones with the right to self-determination to rule the world before whom they will kneel. Now that verse has always made me uncomfortable. It has the capacity to sound rather triumphalistic and bullying. Our God is bigger than your God and so we'll win in the end. But in fact, Paul's saying exactly the opposite. It's not our God is bigger than your God. It's our God is more shamed, more weak, more empty than you can imagine. And to know him, to be his, is to go to the same place to go there because that's where life is in that death in that defeat in that loss and catastrophe is where the god who is all life and all love brings a life that cannot be defeated and cannot be destroyed that's the mystery and the confusion and the impossibility at the heart of it all that in jesus we are confronted with god not as power and not as domination or the ultimate in honor or the highest in status but with the dregs, the weakest, the most shamed, the shamed to death. And in that life, life and love that cannot be overcome is present and found because that's resurrection. Not the defeat of the enemy, the enemy of death or whatever guise it takes. Not its defeat, but its complete non-being because life and love in God takes even death into itself and transforms it into life. That's resurrection. That the worst, the most lost, the ultimate shame is redeemed and renewed into something good and whole and alive. So, yes, Jesus tells the temple leaders that the ones whom they know are on the outside and cannot be accepted into temple worship are the ones who will be first into the kingdom. Not because the temple leaders have misunderstood the place of the prostitutes or the tax collectors, but because they've misunderstood the kingdom. And Paul tells the Philippians that everybody will kneel before their Lord, not because he'll turn around and defeat them, but because in the end, all the structures and all the mechanisms that people and cultures and societies have developed to give status and honor and place and worth to people, all of which depend on shutting somebody out somehow, they will all fall apart because in the end, they're not true. All that is true. Is the love that gives and gives and gives, and the life that is rooted not in social norms and status and self worth, but in the gift of God. Which all makes an interesting cultural and social historical study, but where does it leave us? What does it ask of us? We're not in an honour shame culture for the most part, though we see its presence in certain parts of our society. We know the horror of honour killings which reflect this, and we want to see them stopped. And we see body shaming that can happen among us, the damage that's done, especially to our young women and our young men, by the pressure to look a certain way. And there's the emphasis on the dominant culture of selling things that means we're constantly bombarded with the requirements to upgrade, to upsell, to buy more, to buy better, to buy bigger. But on the whole, we are not an honor-shame culture. But we have our own cultural constructs. That tell us how the world should be, and beyond which it is hard to think, and beyond which it is difficult to imagine God going. What is the place, the context, the way of being that seems to you the most impossible for God to be? I suspect it's quite hard to answer it's hard to see beyond our own cultural constructs but they are there and so it's worth taking a moment to wonder where can I not imagine God being where would it be utterly wrong for God to be one possibility might be in the presence of my wrongness my brokenness we are historically a guilt innocence culture and so knowing God present in guilt not avoiding it not taking it away but there in it meeting us in it is hard for many But that's one equivalent. Can you think of others? What about not simply present in and to my guilt, but with those I know to be wrong? Those whose politics and theory and rhetoric, whose fear, whose violence are destroying societies and the world. Is God there? Can God love them? Accepting that means letting go of any sense that the love of God is determined by worth and goodness, and that is hard. And now we begin to grasp why the empire imprisoned Paul, and we begin to see why the leaders resisted Jesus, because this is what they are saying, that we find God not in the places where God is supposed to be, the places where we're safe and secure and understand what's happening. God is precisely in the wrong places, in the unsafe places, in the wicked and the destructive places, and in the places that mean death. That's where we'll find God. That's where we will be found if we are caught up in the resurrection life that Paul is speaking of. The claim is that travel broadens the mind. I'm not sure, but I do know that faith and trust and prayer and worship are not faith and trust and prayer and worship if they don't broaden the vision and open the heart and disturb the soul and lead us into a life we have not begun to imagine, the very life of God. But that's the promise. The more we let God be God as God chooses and is, not as we determine and expect, the more we discover the life that is rooted in God's being and cannot be destroyed or emptied or denied. And the deeper and fuller and more gloriously we will live and we will see the kingdom.